The First Inventors is a groundbreaking four-part documentary series exploring Aboriginal culture and knowledge. Full disclosure here, I directed the series and it uncovers more than 65,000 years of invention and innovation, revealing how Indigenous people and their traditions created knowledge systems that are still being practised today. But as part of the series release, I sat down with distinguished Professor Sean Olm, the lead researcher of the Centre for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage, Wiradjuri geographer Professor Michael Sean Fletcher and marine archaeologist Professor Jonathan Benjamin. Their collaborative work with First Nations knowledge holders is deepening our understanding of this continent. And to kick things off, the first question I have is for you, Larissa. Um, Having seen a lot of your back catalogue of documentaries that you've made, and you've made a lot over your career, The First Inventors is a very different project to all of those initiatives. And I wonder if you could share with us what drew you to the concept. Thanks, Thanks, John. Um, It is different in in some ways. Um, I started off doing... Um, mostly documentaries that were um, feature documentaries or shorter documentaries that focused on social justice issues. But I think at the heart of them, I've always been drawn to stories that um, celebrate the strength and resilience of First Nations people. So even if I was doing a film like After the Apology, the focus was always on First Nations grandmothers who were fighting to get their children back. So that strengths-based approach to storytelling was something that's always interested me. It reflects what I see in my community and something that I'm really proud of, and I think I want to share that. And although, obviously, I started as a lawyer and work in academia on issues that focus on First Nations disadvantage, I don't like to think of us in that deficit model. I see us as really strengths-based uh, people um, that celebrate uh, self-determination as a practice. Um, so there was a part of that that's always meant I've been very interested in wanting to explore what I see as as the the beauty, the complexity, the strength of my culture that I know from from comments that I've heard since I was a child that many Australians don't see. I'm like all First Nations people. I've grown up hearing the most negative things about my culture as being stone-aged and savage. None of that resonated with what I felt and saw within my community. Um, And I think many of us find ways to try and challenge that for two reasons. First, it's important to challenge those assumptions in the broader community or we will not change the issues of socioeconomic disadvantage. We won't be able to better protect our culture and have more respect for our sides. But also because I think it's important for us as First Nations people to continue that storytelling tradition. It is a part of the continual generation of our culture to continue to celebrate and and support those. So for those reasons, I was really interested in this project that focused on um, the resilience and strength, the wisdom, the innovation and science of um, First Nations people. And when I first um, came on board the project, it had already started to be developed by Margie Brown. Then um, I came on to write the first um, treatment of the series, came a long way from where it was, but 
I guess one of the things that also interested me as somebody who worked in academia and knew how important evidence base was in terms of talking around First Nations issues to know how it can still be something that's very polarising to start to speak the speak truths about First Nations culture, that I was very interested in this idea that we would uh, have this conversation with the backing of First Nations knowledges, but also um, from researchers and scientists, often First Nations, who have been doing that work. So there was a really strong base to that. And, and I guess what might not be apparent, but I think is important to share in this forum, was before I wrote the very first treatment of the series, I actually had many long conversations with, with Sean about the work that was being done through this research group. It was one of the key sources of um, material that we had when we shaped the thematics of the first, the first um, iteration. There have been lots of stories that had been floating around, but um, Sean will remember the many long hours of Zooms that we had um, across the plethora of research. So I think it's important to understand how much of a research base there was at the very beginning of the conceptualisation of this, this series. And actually the two stories that we've, we've got Jonathan and Michael talking about, I think had been in almost from the first iteration of those, the, that um, first treatment. Absolutely. Well, why, why don't we, Michael, I mean, quite a bit of your research was featured in the first episode last night, and you've spent a lot of your career looking ab about how Indigenous fire management technologies have transformed the landscape, and not, not just the distribution of plants and animals, but the very sediments of the landscape. And, you know, I, I know you've been increasingly... Um, prominent in discussing cultural burning and the reintroduction of cultural burning. And I wonder if you can share with us why you think it's so vital for the future health of our country. Yeah, uh, thanks. And it was a great intro, Larissa. And, well, I think what you speak to, the way I'd frame it is, the story of modern Australia is based on lies, complete lies and fabrication. You know, like up until the 1950s, and you'd be familiar with this, Sean, Australia's preeminent anthropologist, Elkin, his synthesis or, or, or main contribution to the narrative about Aboriginal people was that we are, were intelligent parasites, parasites of nature, who had no influence at all. And that person went on to, to lead up, head up protectorates of Aborigines in the Northern Territory. I mean, this is, there's, it's lie upon lie upon lie, lie about um, conflicts, wars, about being nomads and savages, you know, and I think that this sort of thing no one listens to Aboriginal people at all. We just don't get listened to. Whereas things like science, Western science, empirical science is, is sort of vaunted, you know, like it's, it's raised up as kind of uh, truth, you know, as much as it's a, it's a subjective pursuit. Um, so I think this and, and the fact that it's backed by the language that convinces non-Aboriginal people to believe us is so fundamentally important. You can't overstate the importance of this contribution in rewriting the narrative. From my perspective in the little area that I work in, which is, is cultural burning landscape, I mean, it is unequivocal. So there's the data that we talk about in, in the Tasmanian context that Palawa grasslands were invaded by rainforest about 150, 160 years ago, following the removal of Palawa from the island. And there's the unfortunate situation where the Protectorate of Aborigines in Tasmania in 1836 declared the island Aborigine free. <laughs> I'm sure that excludes the slaves that were still working in the cities. 
So we have this unfortunate marker where there was a true cessation of, of management of country or caring for country, and you just see these rainforests, which are valued now by the green movement as wilderness, invading the, the grounds or the lands of Aboriginal people and completely pushing out. Now we've got some species that are virtually extinct that depended on those grasslands. Uh, at the same time, across the non-rainforested areas, we start to see catastrophic fires. And all our data from up from Bundjalung country, so near Byron Bay, most people will be familiar with, right through to uh, Wadawurrung country down near Geelong, you see in the 1800s eucalypts, which you can't... Like, eucalypts have been banned in Portugal because they're so flammable, because they change fire regimes. They've been banned. I mean, just think about that. An incredibly flammable tree has exploded. In, in the Bundjalung case, it's six times as many eucalypts in those um, national parks now that are considered wilderness or, or high-valued areas. And they've just become death traps, fire traps. And what was there before were grasslands. And we have this empirical... Now it's empirical. It provides that uh, stone wall, if you like. And I, I wish that the people would just listen to mob and say, OK, this is the way that we need to care for country. But they're like, oh, no. And what, what we're, I'm trying to do anyhow with the empirics is just say, bang, stonewall that recourse to, to, well, this is a wilderness or this wasn't cared for, so we can have that uh, position. So you see, and it's fundamentally important now, we saw in 2019, 2020, these fires, OK, that are a part of a global phenomenon. There's ones in Canada right now. Before that, there were ones in the Pacific Northwest in the USA. There was the Amazon fires. What do these areas have in common? They were all invaded by colonial Europeans who displanted or suppressed or annihilated or attempt to annihilate and annihilate Indigenous people who use fire to manage country without a fault. You know? And now we're seeing this rapid accumulation of fuels, this uncared for uh, landscape in a biodiversity terms that's associated with a biodiversity loss that began in 1790 and had its most rapid loss uh, prior to the onset of climate change which is associated with landscape use, obviously clear felling for farms, but also the removal of, of Aboriginal care. So we see this explosion of fuels, we see fires take off, and now we're dealing with this situation where climate change is happening and it has to do less work because there's more fuel. It's easier to start a fire if you've got a whole lot of dry timber. You take out most of that dry timber out of you, you're not going to have a very big fire, you're going to have a low fire, and it's pretty simple. So, Michael, I mean, where's this concept of wilderness is so powerful, like terra nullius was such a powerful concept, and wilderness is bound up with uh, conservation ideals and biodiversity conservation. So the whole cultural burning reintroduction movement is really butting up against that colonial architecture that really dominates a lot of thinking. And, yeah. I mean, we're, the work you're doing is challenging that. But challenges, and you've, you've traced the historical use of the word wilderness. It surges every time in the English lexicon. The British encounter something new. <laughs> you, you know, you can do those engram uh, searches on Google and you can see the surging. Uh, when they invaded India, they started seeing wilderness appear in, in books and things. When the southern regions were invaded to see this wilderness taken off and there's a third wave of the use of wilderness which is essentially a rebuttal to the incredible damage you see with massive oil spills and huge deforestation and and real concern that people have around the ways that some humans act in the world and what's happened is that this whole western view is well all humans are bad places are better off without humans 
And look, this is all wilderness, you know, like because it's something. There's no wilderness. You go to Europe. I think they call three percent of Europe is considered wilderness. Yet they have forests, but they're forests that are cared for and have been used and integrated with for millennia. They don't have wilderness in their area. It's this newness. So yeah, you're right. Now we're butting up this idea. Well, landscapes are better off without humans because look at what humans do. It's the way that we view ourselves in the world. You know, it's so true. We are not a, a separate from nature. We are a part of it. And what we're doing now, we've just done, everyone's talking about rewilding. In 1788, commenced the largest rewilding experiment in Australia when we started pulling Aboriginal people off the land and we're dealing with that now and it's just being destroyed. And the way forward now is to recapture that knowledge that's still there, still there with Victor, still there with a whole lot of people and start caring for and engaging with country rather than just neglecting it and turning our back on it. But we are butting up against that idea that, that there is this thing called wilderness and that um, the world is better off without us, which is, I reckon, a, a rebellion against this extractive narcissist view of take, 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 extract, extract, extract. Now we're at this misanthropic view where humans are bad and we're missing this whole middle ground of appropriate care. Absolutely. So can I redirect back to you, Larissa? I mean, I thought the sequence in episode one with Victor Stephenson, uh, who's a fire master, and for those of you you've, who've seen it, Victor was sharing his knowledge about how to read country, about whether it was ready for fire, what type of fire, and he was reading the very sediments, the soils of country and the moisture content of grasses to, to help determine that. And he shared with, with us his knowledge of how animals had adapted to the signs of cool burning. And it, I, I found that a really powerful way of telling the story and uh, Larissa, it reminded me of something we talked about sitting in remote locations on set <laughs> in various parts of the country, but the way the filming of this series gave agency to Indigenous storytelling and the power of that. And I wonder if you could share with us, I mean, how this documentary series was made and why perhaps it was expensive to make um, that's different to the way things are conventionally done. Sure, and especially when we think of this in the context that we've got uh, Channel 10 as one of the partners, so we're looking at something that's very much a commercial television and, as you mentioned in the introduction, this is, this is a, a rare new thing uh, to be in this space. So this is a... Um, different to being able to, say, take the time to develop a documentary uh, feature film where you can spend a lot of time with people. We couldn't cut any of those corners just because of the medium that we were working in. So it, it was still a requirement to think about the long consultation process with First Nations people going into the stories, thinking about how we told those stories that was resonant with how they would tell them. I think that's a big part of the role of us as directors, producers, filmmakers is have to listen to how a First Nations community or person will tell their story and make sure that's how you're telling it on the screen and often with a similar tone. And then after that, there is a long consultation process when you're editing it. I mean, as you know, we might spend three days filming something that will be three minutes on the screen. So how do you keep the integrity of the storytelling from a culture where we take time with story, where silences are as important as the words? So often there's a lot of breath in when you're telling a story. Um, 
these are real challenges in the translation. Um, But I think importantly, everyone who worked on the project and was committed to the idea of um, what we were trying to achieve with the first inventors, whether they were First Nations or not, um, came with the view that we always had to privilege the First Nations voices. Um, Whatever other knowledge holders or scientists or wisdom there was on the screen, it was always about privileging that and making sure we were really... Um, uh, ma- uh, checking ourselves to not falling into traps like trying to say, um, as often as said, uh, First Nations knowledge systems are um, exceptional because they're like Western science. So being really careful about what our messages were and um, pr- privileging that First Nations perspective and knowledge system uh, and being able to sit uh, in those moments where there was a connection or relationship with with Western science, but making sure that we weren't falling into that trap of uh, thinking first or, or, or trying to prove that First Nations um, knowledges are worth respecting because they're more like Europeans than we than we might have realised. So that they were things where we had to be really careful about the language. But I think it meant from the start we were really thinking about um, what were those key messages. And, and setting up at the beginning those, those rules in a way, um, you have the, the practice of the protocols and the editing process that I mentioned. But at the end of the day, knowing from the start that they were the shared values, and we all talked about this when we were setting the series up, they, they weren't controversial in a way, um, that when we had decisions to make in editing or cutting stories, that that was still the principles that we followed to try and keep that integrity. I have to say, I mean, that's one of the things that attracted me to the project and and why I enjoyed working on it so much. I mean, and that approach wasn't without its challenges, but uh, the bar was set so high in uh, restoring agency to community and in, in telling their stories. And Jonathan, I'd like to draw you into the conversation here that um, very excitingly uh, next week uh, you'll be profiled leading your research team working with the Marijuga Aboriginal Corporation off the Pilbara Coast uh, where your team reported the first archaeological site found on the seabed and I'll declare a conflict of interest that I'm actually part of this research team. But um, you know, I, I'm, I wonder if you can reflect for us as a as a non-Indigenous researcher uh, how your relationships with the Mirajuga Aboriginal Corporation worked, and how how that you know enhanced the entire project that dialogue you developed over many years. Sure. Um... Well, I'm the odd man out here with a very different background. I'm a, a very new Australian. And um, working on country is something that, you know, the learning curve was so steep immediately. I do have a background in anthropology and archaeology. And we are empiricists, I suppose. Um, going to Murujuga for the first time and sort of pitching the project to the elders, wow, that was, that was a real experience. I'll never forget it. I stood up and they, um, one of the elders in the back of the room said, who are you and what do you want? <laughs> Get to the point. I said, yeah, okay. And I mean, I did everything not to sort of tremble. And, and it was, so it was a rough start, right? Because, um, you know, 
but good question. Who, who are you and what do you want? So I, I told them what, what we kind of had been thinking and, and what the project was about and a little bit about my own background, which was, you know, coming from overseas. I did my PhD in the UK and, and I was focused on European archaeology, but underwater archaeology of ancient sites. And unlike most of the, the maritime archaeology that has been done in Australia until, until now, most of it has focused on kind of colonial era vessels and ships, shipwrecks, and, and to a degree kind of aggrandized colonialism. And um, I have that debate with my, my um, nautical archaeology colleagues. But I said, this isn't what we're about. We're about the opposite of that. We're, we know that there were people who lived on what is now the continental shelf, two million square kilometers of landmass, drowned by rising sea levels in the last 20,000 years. And we know that that a lot of it would have been destroyed, but also some of it is going to have survived. And we've, we've seen that overseas, and, and that, was, that, was the, that was the pitch. And, you know, some of them said, well, the sea level rose for a reason, and we're not sure. But the majority of the elders that day said, yep, we like the idea. And, um, and I said, and if you happen to, you know, have any tips on where we should go... And I remember one of the elders said, yeah, we know where it is, but we're not going to tell you. You can go find it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And when we did find the sites and we brought back some samples of stone artifacts, they went, wow, you actually did it. Okay. Um, So it was was exciting and it was emotional. And like I said, a a huge learning curve and a a lot of two-way knowledge exchange. We bring our training and our background and and our expertise. and, And of course, nothing beats local knowledge. Nothing. And that's true in Australia and, and elsewhere in the world, but nothing beats local traditional knowledge because people know their country. People know their coastline. They know their waterways. They know. And if I'm an outsider coming, you know, it doesn't matter how many letters behind my name I have, I'm not an expert in that landscape. And still, five, six years of working there, diving there, I'm learning a lot, and they're telling me a lot, and it, it's been a really, really good collaboration. Jonathan, I mean, it it always blows my mind um, how little we appreciate how different the Australian continent looked for most of the human history of Australia, that the current configuration of Australia is only really 10,000 years old. So for 90% of the time uh, Aboriginal people have been in Australia, it looked entirely different uh, to today, and that's without the kind of fire management domestication that that Michael was talking about. And it still amazes me that um, people can go through the entire education system in Australia and not have an appreciation of things. And I have to say, uh, at times, I think the first inventors is almost like a remedial education for the things. It should have been subtitled the things you should have learnt at school but probably didn't. Um, But, Michael, I wonder... You know, growing up, there was nothing like the first inventors and uh, the environment the first inventors is being pitched into is very different. And I know one of the many hats you wear is building Indigenous research capacity. How do you think uh, things like the first inventors and and the research led by Indigenous researchers is creating a more supportive environment for Indigenous research? Yeah, we well, used to be in the room last night and look at all the mob there excited about what they were saying, you know, hooting and hollering and... So it's empowering, number one, you know, people can see. For so long we've been uh, cast as lesser, you know, or non-existent, really. So it's really, um, it's empowering, it's affirming, um, and 
this particular way that it's been done, which is amazing, is digestible for younger people, which is so important. I mean, in many ways, the ship sailed for us. You know, we're a generation that's done, you know, like, and the future is in the kids. So this is really important. And the other thing that's happened in the same time, and we talked about the the amazing Lucy you mentioned last night, the timing of this, which is just fortuitous with the national conversations that are happening right now. But also um, they've just redone the Australian curriculum version, whatever it is that's come out, and they've re undone the Howard era removal of Aboriginal content. And now there's this, not a vacuum, there's this area which needs to be filled with appropriate kind of knowledges and, and content for kids. You know, and I'll show my kids straight away when I get home, all four of them, you know. So, um, and this, it's such a, a, not a unique time, but an important moment in the Australian journey where there's that opening up of, of curricula that we need to fill with appropriate stuff and the work that you guys have done in CABA or we've done in CABA and the work we will do in the next Centre of Excellence, we have to have our eye on the ball of translating that like this into curriculum units, into public pieces like this, outward-facing things. And not only does that teach young kids, but it empowers community already now. So for those who don't know, we've got this new Centre of Excellence, but I don't want to plug it too much. But the the novel thing there is all of the work we're doing is is co-created or, in my case, mostly coming from community, Tanarong community, and they are very explicit that they want this to be a capacity-building opportunity for their community to engage with, with science and other things as an avenue into to these kinds of uh, areas of work, areas of knowledge production, areas of social discourse, all these kinds of things. So I think this... The way that this has been done, it's just amazing, the way that it's been pitched. It's faithful to the science. It's faithful to Aboriginal knowledge. It's really, you've got to be commended. Too often you hear people say, oh, look, we've got this science, scientific data that proves what these Aboriginal people said. You know, like it, it's just more of that colonialism, you know. Like, so this, it's a really well done and it's the way it should be done. I mean, we, we don't need science. I've con- I'm constantly trying to talk myself out of a job. You know, we don't need more science. We need to change the way people think, you know, and I think this helps in that, that journey. I think it's really important. That's Wiradjuri geographer, Professor Michael Sean Fletcher, distinguished Professor Sean Olm, lead researcher of the Centre for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage, and marine archaeologist, Professor Jonathan Benjamin. They were speaking at the Australian Museum as part of the Eureka Talk Series 2023, with thanks to the Australian Museum. The First Inventors is being broadcast on NITV and Channel 10 and continues weekly. The series is available to stream on 10Play and SBS On Demand, so be sure to check it out.